I'm Ella Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Today's episode is one from the archives, but the archives that you won't have heard before. I recorded this conversation with David in September of 2020, where he was reflecting on what it was like 12 months after he'd achieved something pretty extraordinary which was to swim the English Channel. This was a great conversation at the time, but of course, busyness and life and 2020 kind of happened and it never saw the light of day, but it is one that I want to bring to you now. David Frizzell is a team leadership communication and change consultant. He's also the host of the Team Guru podcast, which I've had the delight of being on twice now. So it was actually really lovely to turn the tables and interview Dave for a change. As I mentioned in September of 2019, David swam the English Channel and he shares with us in this conversation why this became a goal for him, the preparation and also what he learned from this experience. I know that you'll be inspired to explore possibilities once you've listened to this conversation with David Frizzell. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alison. It's great to be on this side of the microphone. It is. You're an old hand of podcasts. I've had the opportunity and the great fortune of, of being interviewed by you a couple of times. And when I heard a little bit about your story, I went, oh, hang on. I'd love to dive into your story. So it's great to have you here. Part of what intrigued me was you mentioned at the end of our catch up, you said, you know what I did 12 months ago? I swam the English Channel and I went, hang on, there are not many people that do that. So it is, it's just gone 12 months, so September 2019, and I'd love to start there. And I'd love to you to go back to the night before the Channel Swim and uh, maybe just unpack what was going through your mind and how you were feeling at that time. Because I imagine at that time you've done all the prep, you know what tomorrow is going to bring or not bring. Take us back to that night before. Wow, you know what? It, it was the night before that never happened, actually, Alison. So the, the way it works is you get this, this window of time to swim the channel and can't remember exactly what my dates were. It was something like September 6 to September 12. And during that time, you're waiting for the skipper of the boat that you've booked with to, um, to find the right time uh, in terms of tide and wind. So one day, I think it was on the the 7th of September, they said, we think you're going to go off on the morning of the 10th. Uh, so I thought I had a, a bit of time. And uh, so I you know, had a, a couple of nights good sleep. And then on the morning of the 9th, when I was still thinking tomorrow morning was my time, they called me and said, actually, the, the wind's changed a little bit. We want you to go tonight. So it turned very quickly from tomorrow morning into tonight. And that was actually a real favor because I didn't ever have to go to bed thinking, hey, this is my last sleep before I've got to swim for hours and hours. So I didn't have that pressure. I had a really good sleep the night before thinking it was still you know, two mornings away. And, uh, and I just had that day to get ready. I, I tried to have a sleep that day, but that was totally impossible. I, uh, I had my, my six or my eight hours notice and, um, I was away that night. 
was it something that you embraced at the time or was there a little totally. part of you that actually went, hang on, you said the 10th, I'm not ready for this? <laughs> no, totally embraced it. I just wanted to get it done. You know, turning up, I, I stayed in Folkestone, which is a little town about 20 minutes from Dover. Uh, it's a lovely little town and word on the street was that it's a nicer place to stay. So we did that and we were hanging out in Folkestone for a week before my swim and and that was lovely, but it kind of haunted me. The English Channel, we stayed in this cool house on a hill and the English Channel was 360 degrees everywhere I looked. And this thing, this body of water was kind of haunting me. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to swim that. It might be tomorrow or it might be in 10 days time. I just want to get it done. So I was more than happy with the change in time. And, and, and in general, by that point in my preparation, I was super ready. There was no difference between, you know, you could have, you could have given me an hour's notice and I would have been fine. Um, I was super ready. I was as ready as I was ever going to be. I felt great about it. I knew that the weather conditions were going to be pretty good. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, I, I don't know whether it's bravado. So I just wasn't even nervous at all. It was something I wanted really badly and I'd, I'd wanted it for a long time, but because the preparation had been good and I was in good shape, I, I didn't have any kind of acute injuries. Um, I was super confident, super happy, and just I just wanted to get into it. I'm ready to dive in, literally. Look, I'm going to, um, I'd love to unpack in a moment of the actual experience because I'm never going to do it. So <laughs> I'd love to kind of yeah, hear that through. That. Well, maybe never say never. But my question is why the English Channel? Like what was it about that, that feat and, and I guess even the decision to go, I'm going to give this a crack? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's the, the answer to that lies partly in my nature and partly in the sport that I've taken on. So I, I didn't really start swimming until I was in my late 20s. I mean, I, I'd always always been able to swim. I did a bit of swimming at school. I was never in a squad or anything because I was always such a cricket and footy head. So it wasn't until I stopped playing cricket and footy, and I was pretty average at both those, that I, I started swimming with a squad. And it was only, I only started swimming with a squad because my roommate was a swim coach. Coach, and he's still my swim coach today, Trent Patton, Red Dog Triathlon. So, I mean, he, I, I was lazing around the house and for the first time in my life, I didn't have a thing that I did. I'd always, like I said, played cricket and footy and I did a bit of exercise. I even went down to the local pool for a swim every now and then, but he just told me to come along to his adult squad and, you know, I was just hooked. I went from thinking a K was a long way to swim to swimming 4K sessions straight away from the first day I, I turned up to squad and I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved how it made me feel. I loved the camaraderie of swimming in a squad and it's everything about it is fabulous. And, and then the, the next level of that is, you know, preparing for an event and, and, you know, getting ready and having a date circled on the calendar and standing at the start line of an event. It's just super exciting. I, I I'm addicted to that process. I, I remember it was maybe, um, you know, four or six months into swimming with a squad, summer rolled around and, I entered my first 1K ocean swim. It was at Burley here in Queensland. And I went down, my coach drove me down actually. And I remember standing on the beach and looking out at the markers. They had markers laid out for a 1K swim and a 2K swim. And I remember looking at the markers for the 2K swim thinking, oh my God, I can't believe people swim that far. So, you know, that was that was 15 years ago or 16 years ago. And, and you know, from there, it just built. You know, I started doing, 
doing 2K swims. And and over time, I you know, I remember knocking off my first 10K swim in a pool, actually. So that was quite mind-numbing. And over time, I just built up to it. And, and you know, within a few years, the, the concept of the English Channel went from being this crazy thing that that, you know, extreme people do to something that I started to get sort of more interested in. And then it became a thing where it was a concrete goal. And I used to say it out loud to people, I, I am going to swim the English Channel. I even actually booked in to swim the Channel uh, way back in 2012. I booked in for 2013, uh, but my wife got pregnant. I got married in 2012. Um, she got pregnant pretty quickly. And I'd trained for a number of long swims before that. Uh, up until that point, my longest swim was a 20K swim, Rotnest Channel. I knew what it took. And I, I didn't want to be doing that in the first year of my child's life. So I kind of cancelled the 2013 swim and sat on it uh, for five years until my third child was born. And uh, when my third my daughter was born, someone said to me, someone who's done Ironman triathlon, he said, mate, if you ever want to do the channel, you've got to do it now because your kids are going to need you more and more. There's going to be school sport and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, you're either got to do it now or you've got to wait 15 years. And that advice kind of rung in my head. So I remember, uh, I reckon it was two days after my wife got out of hospital uh, with our third child, I called someone and said, how do I go about booking in? So the decision of now or never obviously brought it to the forefront of, okay, the time is now. Bring me to the actual channel swim. Who is the team that you have to have around you? Because obviously it's not as much as you are doing it as a solo swim, it's not a solo experience. Tell me a little bit about the logistics um, and the, the people you have to have around you. Yeah, it, it's totally a team event and it seems like such a solo thing, but there's no way I would have done this by myself. And actually, uh, I'm so glad that I pulled out of the 2013 swim because I didn't know all of this back then. So we're really lucky here in Australia and, and Brisbane particularly. There's a guy called Trent Grimsey who just happens to be the fastest person to ever swim the English Channel. He did that in 2012. Then he was the world's number one ocean swimmer at the time. And he retired in late 2012 or 2013. And he now has a squad in Brisbane. Uh, this is just a normal kind of adult squad, but heavily weighted towards long distance swimming and specifically English channel swimming. So that was something that that didn't exist before in Brisbane, a specific channel coach. Now I don't swim with Trent on a day-to-day -day basis. I still swim with my old coach and my old squad, but I, I kind of had Trent advising me on, on the type of training that I needed to do. He was a really good sounding board. He's been there himself and trained lots of people to do it. So that was really nice. And, and he and my coach are, are friends. So they, they, they work together, you know, to a certain extent on that. Um, and I also tapped into his squad of swimmers for our long swims on the weekend. So, you know, I did four pool sessions during the week through my sort of 12 month preparation. And then every Saturday would be a long swim. And I, I, I did most of those with, with his sort of stable of swimmers who were preparing for a channel swim that year or, or a different long swim. And that was really nice. And then of course, there's the, the dietitian who I probably wouldn't have engaged back in 2013, but Trent 
Grimsey really encouraged me to do that. So it's actually a friend of yours, someone you know, Tara Diversi, who's done some study really specifically about channel swimmers. And she's got a long list of people she's helped to get across the channel and and the diet, the, you know, the the food that you eat through the week and the, you know, the calories that you consume during a long swim is totally not intuitive. I would never have stumbled across it myself. And I don't I would never have had the patience to read through that type of information myself. So I, I wouldn't have got there without Tara. I wouldn't have got through my training without Tara. Uh, and then on the actual boat, um, so again, there's a like a handler, and that's something that Trent Grimsey has organised from here from Australia. He's got a partner in in, in London or in, in England who comes on the boat with you and, and he's in cahoots with Tara. He organises all your feeds through the swim itself. He's the person that liaises between the swimmer and the boat captain to talk about timing and when we're actually going to do our swim. So he was really important and, and my wife and my sister were on the boat just for moral support and that was super important as well. You know, they were there uh, for the week we were waiting in Folkestone, waiting for my swim and obviously they were there all through the the 12 months of preparation, particularly my long-suffering wife. Let's just talk numbers a little bit. How far is the swim and how? Um, what is the temperature of the water that you're swimming in? So the, it's 34 kilometres from, from Dover across to the nearest point of England, um, but no one swims 34 kilometres except someone like Trent, who's a, a super fast swimmer, because people like me get caught in the tide. So there are different tides that happen at different times. Uh, very few people are fast enough to get ahead of all the tides and just swim straight across. So if you, if you were to look at a map of my swim, it looks a bit like an S. Uh, you've got to say not fight the tide, but swim with the tide. So I ended up swimming 42 kilometers across. So and I just add a, an extra 10 onto the straight, uh, the crow flies distance. Uh, and the water temperature, any anywhere between 14 and, and 18 degrees. You're lucky if it gets to 18 degrees. I think for mine, I got in at about 16 and a half and it might've got up to 17 and a half at different points through the swim. And I tell you, that is freezing. It is freezing cold water temperature. And I knew, you know, theoretically about that, but it wasn't until Easter of the year I swam the channel when I went with Tara and a bunch of Trent swimmers to Melbourne to do our six hour qualifying swim. Anyone who swims the channel has to swim six hours in water below 16 degrees. So I went down for this camp that we had and um, I was super excited because it was the first real concrete step towards the channel. And we arrived on a Friday. We had a lunchtime swim that day. And I remember diving in at Brighton Baths and the water hit me and I realized as a Brisbane boy, I had never, ever swum in cold water in my life. It was nothing that I could have imagined. I had no clue. I remember I swam the, the, that first session thinking things like, oh my God, how do I get out of this? Can I get my deposit back on the pilot boat? How many people have I told that I'm going to do this? How do I undo all that? It was It absolutely hit me like a ton of bricks that I'm just not used to cold water. So that part was super challenging for me. And uh, and the, the, the pursuit of growing comfortable in cold water um, just took that six months between Easter and September of last year. And fortunately, uh, you know, it's winter here, you know, in channel season there. So as it got colder here, it was getting closer to channel season there. And there's this really cool dam here in Brisbane called Inogra Dam. 
dam that's easy to get to and the water gets really cold. In fact, about the time that I was finishing up my preparation and about to head to England, the Anogra Dam here in Brisbane was colder than the English Channel was by a degree or so. So it was really good to have that local local swim hole handy to get used to the cold. But for the cold, the distance I was fine with, um, the cold out of this world, something I couldn't have imagined. No, it's not what we're used to here in Queensland at all. <laughs> Anything no. below 20 and I'm like, no way, not getting oh, anywhere yeah. near it. So you you are ready, it's time to go, you're diving in. Is there a moment in the swim that, that you remember really either strongly, uh, either fondly or because it was a, a tough, a tough moment? So take me through, I guess, the experience of um, the swim itself. Yeah, well, it's a, it's an amazing experience. You know those things you have in your life that you're looking forward to so much for so long, and you've got to, you know. I had an idea about channel swimming. I know a number of people who've swum the channel. I've watched YouTube clips. I've been really interested in it for a long time, but to be there and living it after all that preparation was just a magical moment. You know that you know I was I went into that thinking, God, I've, you know, I've invested a lot in this. There's all the training I've done for years. It wasn't just the 12 months specific preparation, the money that it costs, you know, to take the whole family there, to book the pilot boat. I kind of had this, this rational realization that I could be feeling pressure right now, you know, because there, there was a lot that had been funneled towards that moment. But I thought, well, you know, all of that just adds up to, I really want to make it across. And I really wanted to make it across anyway. So I was kind of able to put the pressure aside because all the pressure was doing was saying, you better make it. And I wanted to make it anyway. So there was no, there was no clash there. And, and I just stood, I remember standing there, you know, they, they, the big boat sort of sits offshore at Dover at, at, at Shakespeare Ho actually, just around the corner from Dover. And they take, they took me into shore in a little dinghy uh, and, you know, it was all ready to go. And, you know, actually in the big boat coming from the harbour, that's when you're sort of getting your instructions from the channel observer. There's someone there from the, um, the channel association who observes your swim to make sure you follow the rules, getting all my instructions. My wife lubed me up. Um, it's, it's just Vaseline. A lot of people ask about the pig fat People don't really do the pig fat anymore. Um, just Vaseline, so I don't chafe. And uh, you know, you get in the dinghy, and they drop you off in at shore, and you sort of clear the rocks, make sure your your, your feet are above the waterline, so you're doing it properly. And then away you go. They sound a, a horn on the big boat, and just dive in and start swimming. It's uh, it's a pretty simple process. Yeah, forty-two k's later, yeah, <laughs> with exactly. the tides uh, along the way. Was there ever a moment where you kind of went, "Oh, how about I just pull up now? Like thirty k's is enough. That'll be fine." Was there no. ever? Did that ever enter your mind at all? Like, no, there is nothing that would have gotten me out of that water. You know, you asked me before about moments. I remember. I remember the start, and I had a I had a very loose plan, a race plan or a swim plan. Um, and it was, it's a very simple one. And I, I remember feeling good. I, I've had a couple of historic injuries and, you know, some days they're good, some days they're bad. So I was really interested to feel how they were that day. And once I'd sort of settled into a rhythm, I realized my back and shoulder were good. They were going to behave that day. Um, I just, I, you know, I remember 40 minutes in thinking, oh, I've got this. I just have to get there. I just have to see it out. And, and I remember kind of, um, I don't know, four or five or six hours in, you know, I was starting to feel, you know, fatigued. My longest training swims were eight hours. So, you know, that was about what I was built for. 
Um, you know, there, so there was a point of being fatigued, but I remember thinking I'm just one working day, like an eight hour working day away from doing something that I've wanted to do for a decade and doing something that is going to be really special for the rest of my life. And I, I just remember thinking, that's a great deal. You know, I was super cold and I was sore and fatiguing, but I thought all I've got to do, you know, some people work really hard physical jobs, eight hours a day, every day. I've just got to put in the next eight hours and I have achieved what I wanted to achieve. And I remember thinking, done. You know, I was from the, from, from the very beginning, I was always going to make it. As soon as I got wet and felt comfortable, there was zero chance. 12 months on from that experience. And, um, I love that sense of, you know, eight hours, that's all it is. And you're probably just counting that down six hours in. Well, I've only got two to go. 12 months on, no doubt there's plenty of moments and reflections on what you did achieve, something you had, as you say, you had a goal for a long, long period of time. What are the key lessons that have stuck with you from that experience, whether it was part of that preparation, the actual experience itself, or or even what happened kind of following? Because sometimes there can be a bit of a, a low following a, a big goal like that that has been achieved and and it's been so such a big part of your forefront of your mind and your thinking for such a long period of time. So 12 months on, what are some of those lessons that have stuck with you? Well, there certainly was never a low. I know what you mean, you know, it makes sense but you know, that you aim for something and once it's over, it's all over. That has never been the case. You know, there has not been a day gone by where I haven't just thought quietly to myself, geez, I'm glad I did that. That was, that's super cool. I'm super proud. And I, you know, the, you know, I do have lessons that I've learned from it, but, but I want to acknowledge at the start that there is nothing except selfishness here. You know, it was a selfish pursuit of something that I wanted to do. And it was for me, and I'm glad that, you know, people I love got to be part of it in a way, but it was totally selfish. And, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that because it, it you know, it was, it was a goal and and having goals is important. And, and I tried to, you know, even through the preparation, I tried to balance my other responsibilities. But to pretend that I did this for some greater cause would be not honest. I did it for myself. But there were, there were lessons. And, and, you know, what my biggest lesson is, it just confirmed to me how important it is in life to do things for yourself, to to tick the boxes that you've always wanted to tick, to to scratch those itches. You know, I'm a I'm a full time consultant slash contractor. I have three kids. At the time that I did the swim, I had a you know a, a little girl who wasn't quite two. I had a three year old and a six year old. So like you know we're in the trenches as a family still. And my wife has a full time job. She's quite senior in a large organisation. Her work is more full on than mine. We have a very busy life. So there are excuses there if I wanted to find excuses, but. I knew, you know, you know, inherently and through experience how important it was for me to to circle a date on a calendar, have a really substantial goal and and work towards that because I know how deeply fulfilling that is for me and I don't know maybe maybe some people don't get that same sense of fulfillment but I suspect most of us do to some extent and while there are lots of excuses out there if we're looking for them I you know my lesson is that I will always do something like this because you know, whether it's swimming or something different, because I do find it deeply fulfilling and it makes me feel great about myself that I was able to go through the process, do the preparation, tick every box. And then on the day I was stand there and, you know, stare down the English channel and execute what I, what I plan to do. Such an interesting reframe of the word 
even that sense of being selfish, uh, you know, I think it's something that we kind of go, well, that's not good if you're being selfish. You really need to be there and serving others. And it's not, I don't think it's a either or, uh, but that reframe of, well, yes, it was. It wasn't for anything other than it was just a goal that I wanted to do. And I imagine the hours that you put in, as you say, the impact on family and those who need to be along with that, that goal as well but also this sense of how important it is to prioritise that for ourselves, to be proud of um, that for ourselves. Was there ever kind of a debate in your head around that, you know, kind of selfishness or sense of sense of self, uh, should I be doing this, what kind of impact this has on others? Um, no, no, not in my head. You know, the, my wife is super supportive and one of the things I learned about this is my marriage is rock solid. Because that was a huge test, you know, like through the 12 months of preparation of this, and, and it wasn't like I wasn't swimming before, I was swimming a lot before that as well. You know, we had a little girl who was going from sort of, you know, in an infant right up to, you know, over one, between one and two. You know, there was nights where she woke up during the night and, and you know, lots, most of the time. And here I am getting up at four o'clock most mornings to go and swim. You know, my wife wore a lot of that heat. And we had to talk about that and, you know, we would all, all be over at some point and, and I shared the load as much as I could, but, you know, there was a lot that dropped on her. She probably didn't get a sleep in for six to nine months because I was up and gone to the pool or to the dam most mornings. Uh, so that's one of the things that I learned and she knew how badly I wanted to do it. And we talked about the practicalities of not doing it now. And then, you know, what about when the kids are six, nine and 12 and, you know, the different needs they'll have then. Um, so she really understood it and she was super supportive. Don't get me wrong. There were, there were times that were difficult. Um, you know, we did a full house renovation in that time as well and moved out and, and did the full reno and moved back in all through that swimming experience. I remember the day we moved out of our house, I swam six hours that morning. I got up at two to start my six hour swim came came home and then moved the whole house of furniture out. And never once did I doubt that. I, I never once questioned it. I loved the challenge of it, to be honest. The sense of, you know, you could use as it as an excuse, yeah. as you say. So something else needs to draw you. And it almost sounds like the reflection of, you know, 12 months since doing it is you wouldn't regret any of those, the 2am get ups, the, the having to balance it all, that it is part of it. And even that sense of, when you invest in yourself and get proud of something that you have achieved, then then what kind of person that makes you become. You hinted before your day job is not to swim the English Channel. It is around change management and leadership, so working with organisations and consulting with them around change management. A lot has changed in our world and particularly in the world of work and yet change has obviously been it's been your your world uh, for for many years. How do you see people responding to change, particularly the change we're facing here in in twenty twenty, particularly around in workplaces? What are the various responses to change that you're coming up against when you when you're working with clients at the moment? Yeah, it's, it is really interesting. And you and I have spoken about this before. It's um, it's a, a rich topic for discussion. You know, well, I think about. Uh, change models. So you think about ADCAR or Cotter's Aid or whatever it is you might have. You know, you think about if you're running a change in an organization, you're leading a change in an organization, you've got to go through those stages of raising awareness, creating desire in people, developing knowledge and applying that knowledge and then reinforcing. That's the ADCAR model. 
the the whole COVID thing, it did the awareness and desire for us. You know, all of a sudden on the news everywhere was, you know, it went from this hint of a virus that was in some places of the world to, hey, this thing is spreading and it might become serious to all of a sudden we're all watching the nightly news to see what new changes our prime minister is going to make. All of a sudden we've gone from keeping an eye on this thing to most of us working from home to whole industries shutting down to people homeschooling their children. It was an amazing study in change and that 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 steep increase in awareness and desire to to get on board and and do the right thing it just happened overnight and i wish as an organizational change leader that you could achieve that kind of desire and buy into a change as quickly as we did but interestingly as the change goes on and on and you said it to me the other day there's no finish line imagine swimming the english channel but france keeps moving and you know that's the kind of feeling that we have you know it's exciting at the start um, we're all a bit unsure and then in general and i'm, I'm going to generalize here you know a lot of people were like, hey, this working from home thing's pretty cool. I get to see my kids a little bit through the day. I get to hunker down and do some really quiet, creative work. I'm producing good stuff. I can still stay in touch with my team on Skype or on Teams. A lot of people have had those experiences. And early on, we were saying, I like this. This is pretty cool. And then a little bit of fatigue sets in. We get sick of the room we're setting in or the dining room table starts to become impractical with the kids homeschooling. All of those kind of things. I miss my teammates. Yeah, it's great being able to chat on Skype, but it's just not the same as being in a room. But at this same time, we've kind of created this new set of habits for ourselves. We're, we're locked into walking from our bedroom to our home office and, you know, only going into the office a little bit, one day a week or two days a week, if at all. So it's going to be a really interesting study in how we come out of this because we broke habits really quickly through an acute sense of awareness and desire about COVID. But through that time, we've created a whole bunch of new habits. And I wonder if returning to work, whether it's a, a vaccine or whatever it is that will that will change this story significantly, wonder if the awareness and the desire to make the next level of change will be as acute as it was last time. And and another thing I want to notice about uh, comment on is, you know, as we're doing change in an organization, it's great to achieve awareness, desire, knowledge and application. But we know as leaders that if we don't reinforce that over time, those changes will slip away and we'll, we'll, we'll slowly slide back into what we did before. We're seeing that a little bit in the way some people are approaching the Victorian lockdown. You know, no matter your opinion on the, the government, whether they have handled it well or not, at the moment, the health situation is that Victorians are in lockdown. And at first, you know, way back in March and April, people were okay with that. But you see that that kind of reaction that we're getting from loud voices, whether they're in the media or their community groups or their people protesting, because the desire and the awareness they felt back in March and April is kind of sort of been watered down a little bit. It's gotten old. There's no novelty left in it anymore. And they're just seeing the downside, the, the what they've lost in their life and their lifestyle through lockdown, as opposed to the the kind of the health emergency that we're all dealing with back when this change started. It's so interesting, the, the human response and behavior and, and certainly that sense of impact on self. And it's, it's 
it's something that, and we even said before we jumped on mic, I'm not sure we've got the answers, but it's just really, really interesting. What advice or suggestions or things would you encourage leaders to be stepping into now as we even just start to talk about that navigating the return to work or the complexities that might come with that when when leaders might have a variety of, of people in their team, some people saying, yep, I'm, I'm ready to jump into that, however that works, others going, no, 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 I'm really happy to kind of stay working from home. And then certainly I've been hearing some of those reactions where people are staunchly saying, I will not return to work until there is a vaccine and it's almost this fear kind of response. So what? how can leaders support their team and start to navigate some of those conversations even now? Yeah, well, I, th- I think there's probably a lot of things leaders can do. The number one thing would be get your head out of the sand and deal with, deal with this proactively. Have conversations about this. Don't let it be the great unsaid. You know, if you're in a workplace where some people are starting to drift back into the office, some people are not – that's totally fine. Let's have a conversation about that because it's amazing where bad blood can start to bubble up in organizations and catch us off guard. And who's to say, if we put our head in the sand about this and and just let some people stay at home, some people go back into the office, some people feel under pressure to do either one and don't address it overtly as leaders you might be surprised at the bad blood that bubbles up. Ah, oh, he gets to stay home, but I've got to come into the office or she gets to go to the office, but I've got to keep working from home. Just open dialogue. That's always a really important place to start. And the other thing for leaders is there is no chance that one size fits all in our approach to going back to work. We've all been working differently for so long and it impacts our lives so differently. Everyone's routine has not just changed, but some of the fundamental parts of their life have changed through this time, whether it's you know, someone at home losing their job or getting a different job, whether it's a, you know, you know, kids school changing or whatever it might be, or or family members getting sick and needing more help, whatever the changes are, leaders need to know. and, And they do know objectively, but they need to remember that everyone is in a totally different situation and there's not going to be a one size fits all for a return to office or whatever whatever goals we're trying to achieve. Which is that open dialogue and checking Mm. in on where people are at, what the roles are, what's actually required. Because I think we do get this opportunity now to to, uh, reset every assumption that we've had and there there can be great value in that. I want to talk a little bit about energy management and you might have some some personal strategies even from your training for for the um, English channel but also in the work that you do working with leaders. I certainly know senior leaders and executives when COVID hit worked extra hours and they were working longer hours to try and make things work. Now they are also dealing with limited resources um, as well as needing to be there to support their team. As you say, have those open dialogues with a whole range of different people, but that can be exhausting and tiring. What are some strategies around energy management you would encourage people to embrace? Well, the first thing about that is there's nothing about this COVID situation or our change in work habits that means that you're no longer a human being. So my first piece of advice is to remember that you're a human being and and if you're burning the candle at both ends, the candle is eventually going to run out and it'll be an ugly mess of, of blob on the table. So I, I love 
Stephen Covey's thoughts. And I like the way that he thinks about our life in the domains of intellectual, social, emotional, and physical. You, the, you, none of us are immune to the fact that our life has to have some sense of balance. Sure, there are different points in our time where we're emphasizing different parts of that. You know, this time last year, I'd emphasized the physical, and certainly my social life had dropped off. That was a point in time thing. During COVID, you know, if an organization is is reorganizing itself and working out how they're managing that, sure, there would have been times where your hours would have increased, but you cannot let that become a new norm. You cannot ignore the fact that there are different domains of your life that you've got to feed. And if you don't feed them, they're going to get really hungry and really cranky, and it's going to impact the other parts. You can't go on blindly working 10, 12 hours a day every day and pretend it's not going to impact your life. So if you are doing that and you are determined that you're not going to change doing that, that's cool, but just be aware that it's going to impact your social life. It's going to impact your emotions. It's going to impact your physical health. And just be aware that that's the choice that you're making. Is there some practical tools even on how you set those boundaries? Because it can be one thing to go, yeah, look, I'm not going to work the extra hours, but that can come with the moment I find the moment we set boundaries, the universe challenges us somehow. (laughs) There'll be a project that comes in that needs those extra hours. There'll be someone who requires that conversation. How do you set boundaries? How do you uh, say no, I guess, for another way of saying it? Well, I love the idea of while I'm working from home, having a, a beginning of the day and an end of the day kind of routine, something that signals to me the end of the day. And that for me just happens to be, I, I up until a few weeks ago, I go downstairs and I do, I've got a little exercise routine I do with chin up bar and all that stuff. That is the, that is what, that's the first thing I do when I finish my work for the day. So I turn off my computer, whatever time it is, a reasonable time around about five, it can't be after 5.30 because we've got a nanny who leaves at 5.30. So we've got kids to look after. So I I normally wrap it up somewhere between 5 and 5.30. I go down and do my exercises, takes me 10, 15 minutes and I am done. And then I come in and I engage with the kids and that is it. I reckon I could count on two hands, probably maximum of 10 times that during that period after I've finished work and, and before I'm going to bed, that I've checked my email. You know, maybe there was a few times that I had something hanging over that kind of was affecting a few people, but I am, you know, super disciplined is not the word. I just forget about it. I am not at work anymore. Um, if you need me, I'll, I'll, I'll chat to you tomorrow. Unless someone is going to die or the world is going to start spinning the other way, there is nothing that's going to get me away from those precious few hours I have with my kids at the end of the day. So a routine to begin and mark the end of the day super important. What do you do to start the day? Well, again, my day starts when the kids go to school and kindy. So when when they leave and I, I say goodbye, uh, I walk up here with a cup of coffee, I plonk my coffee down, I turn on my computer and my day has begun. And uh, so it's all, for me, it's all about hooking my routines to the movements of my family. Um, but if, if, if it wasn't that, then I would have just found somewhere else, another hook, another mnemonic device to attach that routine to. I love that sense of the, the behavior that, that signals I'm starting work 
and I'm finishing work um, and the combination of movement, even just for 10 minutes. I know a couple of years ago I had this realisation that exercise didn't need to be an hour every time you did it because I, I, for some reason I just had in my head, well, unless you do it for an hour, it's not worth it. It doesn't count. No. <laughs> and yet there's all these other benefits. I love that sense of crafting that transition time and particularly if you're tying it into to movement and transition. Do you have any other non-negotiables for your own mental well-being, emotional well-being that uh, that helps you to kind of optimise your your own performance and work patterns? No, no meetings at night. So last year I, I had a contract with a global organization. I was in a global team. I had a, a number of months of nighttime meetings and that was okay. It, it just started to really hurt the family. And I, and I've, you know, so my boy who's four, uh, I saw he started to play the way nighttime meetings came into his play. So he would be on the phone saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I've got a meeting. I can't talk to you now. Um, I'm so sorry about that. He was he was sort of parroting the language that my wife and I use. My wife has a global role and she has a number of nighttime meetings. So when we were both in that position, it just did not work. So I'm happy to give any client any any pound of flesh through the day, but that nighttime has to be sacrosanct for our family because if both of us are, are kind of on call during that period, it has a real impact. And and that same boy is my middle boy, Fergus. I remember you know, one night last year when I was having a number of nighttime meetings, I, I put him down. He was looking a bit glum and he just, his face just sort of cracked apart and he started bawling his eyes out because I'd said to him, I've got to go to a meeting. And all I could hear him say in through his tears were mummy, daddy meeting. And it just broke my heart. I thought, why am I, why am I doing this? So oh, this is a good gig. I had a good gig with a large organization. It was a really enjoyable role but nowhere near as enjoyable as my relationship with my kids, nowhere near as important as our family dynamic. So that is a really firm rule at the moment. And I can't imagine what would change that at this point in our family's life. Kids are mirrors, aren't they? They pick they up, are. they hit it's that amazing. language and and as much as we go, oh no, I, you know, I'm not I'm not having an impact on them, you know, it's it's remarkable. And that that gives that purpose about why those behaviors and why those non-negotiables are so so clear. And I think sometimes when we set those, we give permission for other people to do that, whether it's the clients we're working with, that that becomes really, really important as well. In terms of, obviously, we've had the the opportunity to talk about your experience of the English Channel, uh, reflections on some of the lessons around that, as well as, you know, how do we kind of step into this change? And I love that sense of you burning the uh, the candle at both ends, it's just going to end up as a blob. <laughs> and, and if that's what you want, that's your choice. But uh, yeah, exactly. that's uh, just, just know. be just know, know. That that's where you're headed. Yeah, 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 for sure. Do you have a, a next goal on the horizon? Yeah, I, I'm living it. I, I was saying, I was articulating to people, you know, why are you doing the channel now? And I said, I just want to be, I, I want to get this monkey off my back and I just want to be an awesome dad. I want to be taking my kids to tennis and their own swimming lessons and whatever it is, I'm, I want to be fully available. And and that's how it's felt. 12 months down the track, um, I've been fully available. There's been no eight-hour swims on Saturday mornings. None of that. I'm just being the dad that my kids deserve. Now, I'm not – well, I'm not perfect, far from perfect. So maybe my kids deserve better. 
but so that was that's the goal. And you know, fa- and, and anyone who's listening who has kids knows that families change. You know, things change over time. There are different phases. But right now, that the phase my family is in, I've got three young kids. They just want to be around mum and dad. That's the most amazing thing in the world for them. So that's that's what I'm going to give them. I think there's plenty um, in that younger age group that. You know, COVID-19 is their greatest, greatest thing that they've ever, you know, finally we're home, mum and dad are home. (laughs) This is amazing. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I want to wrap up. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, it's it's so clearly means to me the live the life that's best for you. You know, cliches are always a cliche for a reason. You know, it hurts your ears now, but it started at a good place. And that cliche about be your best self, I know that it hurts because it's such a cliche now, but it's so true. You know, as far as we know, you get one crack at this thing called life and you can sleepwalk through it if you like by being overcommitted to work or not doing what you should do about the relationships that you have by watching one too many Netflix episodes every night and getting up late by having, you know, a glass or two of wine too many every night and not doing the things that you want the next day. All of those things, they're, they're a choice that you make. But, you know, the thing that I've landed on, and, and I'm so far from perfect and I've got lots of things to improve, but the thing I've landed on through my podcast, actually, being really acutely aware of, of good ideas is to live a deliberate life, to live deliberately. Whatever choices you make, and there'll be right ones and wrong ones, good good paths and and not so great paths, but at least make it a conscious choice rather than sleepwalk through this one chance we get at life and then get to the end of it or get to some point and, and have a whole bunch of regrets. No more sleepwalking. I love that. Look, thank you so much, David. It's been such a delight chatting with you. Team Guru podcast. We'll put all the links on the show notes. Uh, definitely recommend it. There's so many insights and conversations and uh, it's just become a fantastic platform. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Alison. Loved it. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.